Hello, beautiful. And what I really want to know is, what is good in your life today? I'm Kia, and this is another episode of the Female Veterans Podcast. Today, I have with me an amazing lady. She is a shipmate of mine, so you know how excited I get when I get fellow Navy on the show. So I'm super excited about that. But not only that, she does something really, really, really special, especially to me. She is the president and co-founder of Leashes of Valor. And we're going to find out much more about this during the interview. And you'll find out exactly why it's so special to me, especially as a dog lover. I have two of my own. They are my babies. And they are also my therapy animals, along with a rabbit but we'll talk about that another time. Anyway, I am so excited to have you here, Danique. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk today. (laughs) Oh, great. Great. So I guess we'll just jump right into it. And I'll ask you my very first question. What made you join the military? I was a post 9-11 joiner. So I um was 21 years old when September 11th happened and a pretty naive college girl living in Florida, living the great life. Um, So it was a really hard reality check for me on the bigger concept in, in the world going on. And I saw a police officer actually protecting a synagogue and I wanted to go into law enforcement because of that. I grew up in Germany, so it seemed very symbolic. Um, And then the Navy promised me Master at Arms, so that's how I ended up uh, joining the Navy branch. It, I almost did Marine Corps because a lot of my family was Marine Corps, um, but they wouldn't promise me that specific job in my contract, so that's how I faltered over to Navy. And um, I'm glad I did, actually. I really enjoyed it, and I, I met some amazing people through it, so I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't chosen that route. Wow. I I did the same thing. I chose Navy because they were going to guarantee me a job of hospital corpsman. So that's what I did in the Navy Um, and eventually pharmacy. But yeah, I felt that I was thinking of the Air Force and just like the Marines, they wouldn't guarantee me a job. They were going to assign me. And I was like, no, no, I need to have some control over. (laughs) I know I'm going to the military, but I need to have some control. So yeah, that's how I ended up in the Navy too. I vibe with that. Um, Tell me, what was boot camp like for you? I actually had a pretty tough time in boot camp. Um, Very upsetting for me to not have control over little things like brushing your teeth. Uh, That was known as a privilege in boot camp. And um, those basic needs for me were very hard to, to break down on a permission level. So I basically started getting up before Reveille to brush my teeth because I just went to the head and then got back in the rack and then Reveille would happen and then I didn't have to worry about it. So always good on circumventing the system early. <laughs> and by the time I graduated, I was known as Candy Girl. I'm probably the, one of the few people who got fat in boot camp. What? Uh, I actually had to have my uniforms altered because I gained so much weight. And I always, for some reason, I'd watch and had to like catch up with my unit and somehow magically would go into the NEX and get some Snickers, but I was eating my feelings basically. <laughs> um, 
So I gained a lot of weight in boot camp. It was, I'm very athletic. I'm from an athletic family and the exercise level in the Navy was not um, what I was used to. So yeah, I actually got chunky. Wow, that's that's rare. <laughs> yeah, that's rare. But I mean, other than that, boot camp was a tough cookie. You know, it was a hard pill to swallow on on the pecking order of things. And at you know, twenty one, how how not mature an adult you really are. So it was it was a growing experience for sure. Oh, I I agree. Did you make a lot of um, close friends in boot camp? Um, one other one, because we ended up going in the same rate, she also became a master at arms. A lot of the other people were very, um, in completely different industries and interests. And most of my division was, uh, straight out of high school. So there are only like two or three of us that were, you know, above drinking age. So we kind of clicked together too. Yeah. Yeah. I actually made two really good friends in boot camp. And um, they then went to core school with me afterwards. And we were at Great Lakes. So we went straight from, um, from boot camp to A school at Great Lakes on the other base. And, um, and from there, after, during A school, one of the girls and I had a huge fight. She hooked up with a guy I liked. And then we became enemies. It's so silly when I think about it. <laughs> And then um, the other friend of mine, we were good friends all through A school. And then when A school was done, we all tried to stay in Chicago. So another girl took the other girl's place in A school. So there was always three of us, me and two other girls for some reason. And then at the end, we all tried to stay in Chicago because it's the strictest base, or at least it was at that time. And um, we figured we had a shot to all be together if we chose that base on our dream sheet as number one and um two out of a three out of us <laughs> we got chicago i think the third one might have put california <laughs> just said she put that's chicago. really far away <laughs> right and because she ended up going to camp pendleton but um but we missed her and it was it was really cool to just make those kinds of close ones and i made a bunch of girlfriends in boot camp i will always shout out sunny woolsey because she saved my military career <laughs> once another story for another day she was my friend from boot camp and she was at tpu on the base and um we got into some trouble and she saved me so <laughs> being um young and on your own for the first time can be quite an adventure did you have any adventures like that after boot camp when you were first um i guess on regular active duty i mean you know, being a master at arms, we were kind of in our own little dysfunctional group, pretty separate from, I guess, the rest of the Navy experience, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Oh, yeah. Nobody else wants anything to do with us. Um, not like we're any more respectable, honestly. It was kind of like super troopers. Um, <laughs> a whole bunch of 18-year-olds guns and all of a sudden put them in law enforcement. Um, so I probably have worse stories of, like, on-duty time than off-duty time. Um, I mean, we gunned, apparently somebody gun decked the, the carpool paperwork for a year because we were missing a vehicle that somebody must have gone off-roading and actually sank it in one of the retention ponds in Jordan. <laughs> um, for a whole year, like we just magically had that thing appearing on paperwork being in, I don't know, motor pool and repair, but it was actually in a pond because during a drought, somebody saw the 
the light bar sticking out, and that's how, you know, <laughs> the unit got caught. Oh no! Okay, <laughs> okay, so, that's a great. So story. The mastered arms have their um, not so great moments too. Thankfully, it doesn't threaten national security too much. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, so what was active duty like for you aside of shenanigans? <laughs> um. My most of my active duty tour is actually really crappy. Uh, I had a really toxic first command um, that had some very recurring sexual assaults happen. Mm. So there was a lot of hazing and um, anything in that category. So the first three years were really rough. Um, wow. Academically, so like from making rank and um, all of those things, I, you know, I did really great. So I made E5 in 18 months in. Oh, wow. But it was, it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Uh, I was suicidal at the first command for sure. Oh my God. So it's interesting that you bring that up, right? Because everything that's going on right now and we're seeing toxic commands come to the forefront, at least one that I can think of, Fort Hood. Yeah. Right. And so we're seeing people go missing. We're seeing bodies come up. And that's right on our United States soil. Actually, it's, it's mind blowing to me. But we always know that there are some bases that are more toxic than others. Right. And so and this is from the dawn of time. OK, it just yeah. is what it is. But when you see this come to light and you see people just missing and bodies turning up and families wanting answers and it's kept so quiet you know it's um it's it's so impactful when you start to see it hitting the news and you go wow here's another toxic base i had this experience or i had that experience or i knew someone who was on this base and this happened to them so tell me what was your what was your toxic base like um it's interesting. So one of my best friends to this day, actually, is who I was stationed with there. Um, it was a site. So the sexual assaults occurred by the senior enlisted in my chain of command. So they were basically the entire senior enlisted running security, um, which kind of didn't leave a lot of places to go report anything. Um, unfortunately, I was also assaulted in the barracks by a Marine. Um, but he was from another command. And so then you get those answers like, we're in a, we're in a time of war because like the invasion just started. Um, so they say, you know, he has a critical role, like you need to make this go away. So it's that value system on one, one DD-214 being more important than another basically. So this person is more valuable than this person because that's how it started being portrayed. So these things then start spiraling. Um, so that assault then obviously made me more vulnerable to the chain of command, which then triggered the senior enlisted club um, to start those things. And that almost lasted the entire three years. And um, I mean, you have to think of scenarios like barracks access if it's your chain of command, like they're allowed to do a health and comfort, you know, like, so there's a lot of very blurred lines and a very interesting relationship to consent um, and what people can withhold or control with uh, in order to achieve, you know, somebody's compliance, putting it politely. Um, so yeah, th three years of that 
and I actually uh, mustered out early, so I got to phone muster before I left with the command master chief after I tried to report. Um, but the answer was something close to, you know, you shouldn't mess with the chief's mess. So it's a it's an interesting unlearning that happens after you leave the military on, you know, finding your value again. So you you tried to report the the word tried really stuck out to me and i'm trying to wrap my mind around it because you said a lot of things mm -hmm. just then and the first thing that comes to my mind besides not really being able to fully report because you tried to report is and then the feelings of being less valuable of a sailor than another just because it's wartime and then there's all these assaults happening and they're happening within your chain of command and you're the police so i just it's really kind of mind-blowing it never gets easier for me to hear it's far too common for me to hear but it's never gets easier when you when you're talking to the police and not only are the assaults being perpetrated by the police? You are also a, a police person and you're assaulted and you don't even get justice. It's appalling. So I just had to say that, number one. And number two, what do you, can you elaborate on how you tried to report and what that story is? Um, so the, fi the final reporting with the command master chief, I had threatening voice messages from the, the E9 in my chain of command, basically trying to order me to come over to his residence. And they were pretty explicit. I wasn't going to have to fill in a lot of blanks. Um, and this is, oh, 2005. So this is before the iPhone came out. So let's also be realistic on our capacities. Just want to remind everybody that this is way before fancy tech like now. Um, so I played the Command Master Chief those voicemails and basically it was like asking to get out from under this guy's thumb because he literally controlled everything from, from medical to meals to, I mean, you know, they have your economic, they have economic control over you. Promotions, schooling, picking my next orders. Um, so I was basically just begging to get out from under him. Like, I don't really want to report. Like, I just want to give you enough evidence to show you that you need to move me. Um, and they wouldn't, but he did let me phone muster until my orders came through. So you couldn't move to, to another division. There was nowhere else to go. I was in, um, Charleston, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. So, oh um, there weren't really any other commands that would accommodate me unless I basically wanted to tank my career. You know, once you get out of your rate, if you go hand out basketballs at, you know, the gym or MWR or something, you're just sinking your career. So you kind of start calculating what's worth it. My God, the choices. These are my options, you know, and I'm the survivor. You know what else really troubles me is that I know for some people, 2005 seems like a long time ago, but to me, it really doesn't. I know. And 
this was just like yesterday in my opinion and this is like this is not like 1970 you know what I mean like this is the 21st century okay and women have been serving since what the 30s to the 40s so in some capacity right and we're still no better we're no. still no better so when i was in and i'm sure it was like this for you and probably everybody we had to do all this training on sexual harassment and all of these things right like so why do we do all that training <laughs> like really i think we're training on the wrong thing because i don't think any, i mean i didn't take it serious and i'd already been assaulted like at that point it was ironic, I think. is that what you would call it like oh that's cute um how, how did you feel as an officer knowing that all these assaults were happening on the base um so that took me a long time to find a term for and it's called moral injury it's institutional betrayal yeah so that you know you put this i wanted to be a cop like i joined the navy you know like it felt like this is what i asked for this is what i'm getting am i getting what i asked for um or did i make the wrong choice like is this the price i have to pay to be in that club so it was it was a tough one to, I call it forgiving the uniform. Like I had to become reacquainted with um, some semblance of respect for it, you know, like that, that pretty much goes out the window. Absolutely. I mean, these assaults happen while I'm in camis with my Kevlar on, with my gun belt on. Like you can exert control over people that doesn't have to be physical violence at all. Oh my God. I absolutely hate that that happened to you. It's not, it's, it's horrifying. It just never ceases to amaze me how we as women, <clears throat> excuse me, we as women join the military and we put our lives on the line just like everyone else knowing what we're getting into and never for a moment do we think that we we you know we we expect that you know you could you could get injured or die during wartime from the enemy right mm -hmm. but never do we expect that the enemy is our brother at arms you don't go into the military thinking that you could potentially be at danger by someone who's supposed to have your back or so, supposed to be looking out for you or be a mentor or, you know, someone that you can trust and look up to. You never go in. I, I certainly did not go in thinking that at all. And it's one of the reasons why I do this show so that when women or young girls are considering a career in the military, that they have a resource where they can hear all the stories, good and bad, and make an educated decision because this is shocking and horrifying but people need to know that it happens it's real so i just want to before we go any further i want to thank you for sharing your story because it's powerful thank you it's powerful so 
in order to cope after this assault happened and you wanted to report, but you were not permitted to report because this guy's career was so valuable, right? Um, how did you get through each day until you had to leave? Did you have to come in contact with this person anymore or? So the, the, the assault with the Marine who was um, stationed in a different unit than I, he, um, he lived in the barracks next door. So I was just desperately trying to move out of the barracks. Like, I don't want to be neighbors because people in the barracks talk. They definitely tell the narrative completely different. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, victim shaming in any yes. direction of alcohol to clothes to whatever. But they wouldn't let me move out because we were all E3s at the time. And, you know, usually it's like E5 and above, you can move off base. So I emailed the Oprah show. No, you didn't. I called the command and asked what's going on. I said, I was, you know, I wrote basically I was assaulted and they won't let me move off base. And somehow I want to make noise. And they called the command. I got called in front of the old man, the, the captain of the base, got my ass handed to me. I bet you did. But with I, that came a chit that got me off base with BAH. Super worth it. Yep. Super, totally. How brave were you? And Oprah, too, though. I love that it was Oprah. Who doesn't love Oprah? I mean, you know, this is like, oh, this was 03. So, I mean, she was a big deal. Like, she was still on. Yes. Like, today's always going to be a big deal. (laughs) But seriously, that's huge. And you know what I love? Shout out to the Oprah show, meanwhile. They did the research, man. They called the command. They called the command. Like, they legit called the command. And without Mm -hmm. that call, you might have been stuck in that base. Oh, yeah. Meaning my chain of command had the barracks keys. So I also had like, you know, then the least senior leadership started showing up in the middle of the night in my room saying, you need to come in for, we need a female to search somebody we apprehended, like super bullshit stories, but your E9 or your LT, like shouldn't just be coming into your bedroom, you know, like. Into your home, into your safe space. Yeah, but they have keys. Like that's their job to have keys for health and comfort. Right. Oh my God. I mean, what a nightmare you were living in. And I, I mean, the balls on you though, <laughs> to, to, to just decide, you know what, I'm not going to just take this. I'm going to do something. You yeah, know? So I, mo- I moved off base. Um, and from that point forward, I almost pretty much every time had a roommate. Mm-hmm. So somehow or another, even if they didn't have to pay, I lived with other people. Smart. Yeah, because, I mean, it continued for years, and some of them actually would show up where I lived off base. What? Um, Yeah, I mean, this was, like, super fucked up. Yeah, I'd say. (laughs) Like, it went on for, so this went on for the three-year tour. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And so... I can just imagine how unsafe you must have felt at all times. Yeah. I, but I also self-medicated a lot at that point, which we should all be concerned that somebody in law enforcement is basically, anytime I'm not in uniform, I'm, I was drinking or sleeping. Wow. So the depression is real. Like we are. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
it's um i mean there's so many physical reactions to trauma like people don't understand um the physical consequences of ptsd mm-hmm. so anybody who's ever had a chance to look up a book called body keeps the score it is fascinating and it's one of the early research on veterans vietnam veterans and the, the physical symptomology so i had all of it i started developing migraines um that the jaw tension you know like we carry everything in our upper body right uh, so i started having back problems i inc- you know coincidentally also had knee injury that required two surgeries so being on limb do doesn't make you any better of a sailor so it also makes you a target again so it was a lot of just inconvenient things that lined up that just didn't make it easier at all um so yeah between migraines depression substance abuse um yeah i mean it was a roller coaster and it basically just got worse and you just don't have time to recover like you just can't catch a break and that's the hardest part because mental health is still frowned upon anybody who has a clearance or carries a firearm knows that going to mental health you're pretty much giving up your badge so that's why most of them don't seek it same with special operations look how much everybody's put them on a pedestal it's really hard to ask them to go to mental health and pretend like something's wrong or you know acknowledge something's wrong when everybody puts them at the top tier um so for for so many different communities yeah and so community has a very hard mental health stigma oh do not get me started. We do not like, want to go down that rabbit hole. I can tell that there's a hard stigma because we don't see a lot of applicants. And if we do, it, we really have to check that there's family buy-in or they just culturally in their social circle don't get the support they need. So it's definitely a stigma that still needs to be addressed. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so the stigma for mental health care in the military has been around since the dawn of time, I'm sure, and further. And um, especially, I would imagine, for officers and special ops, right? And then these are people that see some of the hardest things to see and deal with. I mean, I'm talking about even civilian officers seeing some of the most horrible things in dealing with the most horrible people and yet they don't get mental health so then we wonder why a lot of these tragedies happen because these officers are not getting support in a way that they could really use it you know and special ops we wonder why these guys are committing suicide after they come out well because they're not getting the 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 mental health care that they need because it's frowned upon there's a stigma you know and so and just like you said i mean we could really we could go into detail about how i feel about the african-american community and the stigma for mental health care or the um certain barriers to getting the services that they need in certain communities we could talk about that all day (laughs) so i am i am right there with you Um, I think it's a necessary conversation, you know, and it's something that we really, I think as women, as as female veterans, we really need to support each other and um, support our sisters with encouraging them to get at least peer support. This is what I do here. 
um, and, and helping each other and seeking that help when we can get it. Because unfortunately, I don't think I know anyone who has served that has not seen some type of bullying, racism, sexual harassment, known of a sexual assault, like um, misogyny, you know, uh, abuse of power, like something, right? And this is within our our military. This is, you know, we this is should not op, absolutely should not be happening, especially in the 21st century. So I'm really glad that you are sort of voicing this right now. And anyone out there that is um, not sure if they should pursue mental health mental health care and get some help in this way, definitely do it. Definitely oh my God, do it. Yes, absolutely. And if you don't want to go to the medical on base, um, one organization is Headstrong Project. They will find you a shrink up in town. And vet centers are also not necessarily connected to your military record, meaning you don't have to worry about your clearance. Mm -hmm. So absolutely go check it out and go vent to somebody for a little bit. Can't knock if you don't try it. That's right. I mean, even if you're not sure, if you're thinking, do I need mental health care? Go, go talk to somebody. Just have a conversation. Try peer support first. There's a great organization called Veterans Counseling Veterans. Um, I interviewed Ellsworth. He is the founder of that. And I don't usually interview men. So you know that it's a solid organization. If I brought him on, um, he's really passionate about helping veterans, male and female, and he, he, his service is amazing. So I will drop the link for all of these things in the show notes for anyone who wants some additional support. And you can always reach out to the Female Veterans Podcast, and I will always help you in any way that I can. The, there's a link in the show notes where if you want to connect with me, that you can just send, drop me your email there and I'll reach out to you as soon as possible. So um, I'm gonna ask you another question. And my next question for you is, um, what was the transition to the next base like? How did you leave the toxic base and get to the next base? Uh, my life is so drama filled, so. <laughs> I left the first base on orders to an NCIS school in Fort Leonard, Missouri, um, which is protect, Protective Services School. And two things during that, I was assaulted at the range by the instructor and then was dropped from the course. An investigation was done because um, again, I reported, so definitely not go, don't go down quietly. Um, they found nothing wrong with my report, however, the the army letter said they did find enough evidence of all the previous things I listed that I was aware of because I knew other people in security, um, that the guy still was retired early or whatever. So that's what he got kind of true, but not true enough, you know? Oh, so he, so he didn't go to jail, but he just, he retired. He had yeah. to, he had to give up the rest of his career and go yeah. retire with like retirement pay and live his life. Yep. Like so he isn't a criminal. For, for reporting, I got dropped on request. And then Hurricane Katrina hit. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. I just need a moment. Right? Me too. <laughs> I, just, I just, I need a moment because 
I, I wasn't expecting that. Okay, one assault, then we have two. And your bravery, we have to discuss that for a second. Your bravery of reporting again. Now, I, I understand why a lot of women don't report. Believe me, I do. I do. But I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I understand why people don't report. It absolutely sucked. I mean, I, and the hazing afterward, like, I, I feel you. That shit is real. Um, there's so many weird different ways pe- they, they torment you afterward. Um, I can absolutely understand why somebody wouldn't want to go through that, for sure. Um, on the other hand, man, getting that final fuck you is so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, I promise you, you will get it. Karma does work. Um, <laughs> So I, I love the civilian that worked at the Seabees Command at Fort Linwood and the Seabees Command actually, um, because Katrina hit, they uh, had to basically take me on on TVY orders because nobody in the Navy was moving anywhere. So I basically got stuck in Fort Linwood, Missouri, which was wow. miserable. Um, but they also helped me with that reporting. So the civilian secretary who ran the CB's command and the CB's leadership and, uh, by, like all dudes, all old salty CB dudes. Um, but seriously, like the best experience, like they were awesome. I would have stayed in Fort Leonard just to stay at that command. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's definitely also great experiences and great people that even in 05 were saying, I believe you, let's do the paperwork. This is the process, we're gonna knock this out. And even though like the army command is like, well, that's not real, that's not happening. However, you know, whatever the answer was, the Navy side handled their business. That's good to hear. It's really good to hear. You know, I, um, I love your energy <laughs> and I love your like spunk mm-hmm. and just going after it. I mean, so, I've definitely done a lot of interviews and like you said, the hazing and it's, and the saddest thing about it and the, um, and and all the mistreatment of the survivor, the saddest thing about it to me is it, it comes from both men and women on the command, you know? Yeah. So you think that, you know, a woman would have compassion for what you experience, but a lot of times the cattiness, the claws come out and it gets really catty, even in this male environment, that they are amongst some of the worst people hazing. And it's always like appalling to me because at very least we should have each other's back. We, You would think another woman would go, what happened to you? I believe you, but that is not always the case. And then you have to deal with the guys and their particular brand of hazing and, and slut shaming when, when, when you didn't do anything wrong, <laughs> right? You were, you were attacked, you were assaulted. Yeah. So having to go through that, I definitely understand. I definitely understand um, why people don't want to do it. And then, and then what it causes. So in addition to having been violated, and having this violent act perpetrated upon your person, then you have emotional violence committed to you by the people 
who are again supposed to be your family supposed to be having your back and supposed to be the people that you can count on and i've heard it time and time again with kimberly bailey that the season four premiere that was heartbreaking what she experienced when people would turn away when she walked down the hallway because the guy was popular Mm -hmm. on base and and then um with aaron scanlon who i think i think she's episode five of of season four what she had to go through when the military took over the investigation and from the civilians and how she had an like an airtight case and somehow the guy walked like and and how that just destroyed her and she had to rebuild herself back up it's just and i mean she jumped out of plane right it's not like you're you're you know a soft like you know woman (laughs) you're an officer she jumped out of planes like these things happen and then you have to deal with the aftermath and and as bad as the act is the aftermath can be equally as bad you know so it's just it's heartbreaking so was it that cv command that sort of helped you start to begin to heal uh i mean I wasn't there long enough and you know with everything with Katrina and getting new orders I mean my my entire life turned upside down my household went to Italy I was not going to Italy any longer so um like you know when you're TAD somewhere I mean they were they were great transitional command but not long enough to like really have like impactful relationships but that did come at my um at my last command actually Okay, so tell me about this last command, because I got to hear something good. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's worse first. Oh, okay. Well, Definitely. let's not jump ahead. What happened next? So I get orders to the John F. Kennedy out of Mayport, an aircraft carrier. Okay, on a ship. Here we go. Yeah, I'm actually super pumped, because, um, you know, how else are you going to make rank at some point except for mm-hmm. getting pinned? to go to sea. Yep. So why else join the Navy would go to sea? And so I was super pumped about it. Turns out about one month into the command that I only had an overseas screening, not a sea duty screening. So once I went through my record and with everything that had happened to me and was physically deteriorating with me, I couldn't pass the sea duty screening. I got kicked off the ship. Oh no. So... I was like partially through my DC and just got like my warfare book and like we did one underway and like even the senior chief and I mean like crusty senior chief um, mastered arms. He's like, you're the first girl I've lost that didn't get pregnant. Oh, that say a lot about the old guy's mentality too. Though. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was heartbreaking, but they were, I mean, it was a really positive experience when I was on the ship. Um, I was the only female master at arms on the, on the entire aircraft carrier. Wow. So I was in a, a unit full of dudes and they were all fantastically professional. So it was really, really great experience. And then I transferred to Naval Station Mayport security because I wanted to stay in my rate. And at this point I was being med boarded. So I actually got kicked off the ship and got my first set of med board orders for the first six months. Oh, set. wow. So they're like, so all right, to go to, you got to go. I was go. supposed to go to the air station hospital and hand out basketballs. You know, that's what we call it in our career when you go 
you know, that, wow. that limb do people, the limited duty people all just have some kind of generic job to do their medical appointments. Um, but yeah. I begged the leadership at Mayport to let me come on basically just as an additional body. Cause I, you know, I was a master at arms. So there's just certain things I'm not allowed to do. So I went to Mayport security, the master chief and the chief at the time took me on and they were the tits. Those guys. <laughs> That's fantastic. Enough, I'm still in contact with them to this day. Uh, they almost lost their career trying to protect me from the security officer because that command got bad too. No way. What is it? The ship was good. And, and you yes. would expect the ship to be a little right. questionable, but the ship was good, but the base is stateside. Again, security too, the security it's, officer. It's security. So, wow, so what happened? Tell me, I'm, I got it. This is a civilian security officer. He used to oh. be a Jacksonville Sheriff's Office guy and from what I understand got fired and somehow magically the government hired him to run security. Oh, the government hired him. I he was unwanted. Um, <laughs> and so he had a lot of problem with women, um, minorities, uh, anybody with any kind of conditions, like anything. Surprise, so surprise. Yeah. So it started one of those. And my master chief was Hispanic. So he was the first one to get sent on... Uh, what, what was it called? AI, IA, individual yeah. augmented duty. Mm-hmm. 26 year master chief gets sent on IA. Anybody ever heard of that? So that's what this guy started pulling. He started um, sending people on deployments. He started, uh, my chief ended up terminating his shore duty and going back to sea before he retired to get away from the guy. Wow. Um, he basically just kept violating my medical orders. So at that point I'd had two knee surgeries. Uh, my wrist was in a cast because I kept having these cysts or this um, joint fluid developing from wrist injuries. Anyway, basically I'm falling apart and there's not a lot of things I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I'm assigned to the boat unit. I was a very good boat driver. I trained with the SWIC guy down there. Um, so I was supposed to take the canine guys out to just inspect boats. You know, I'm an extra body, I'm capable of doing that. But no, this security officer had me on the pier moving barricades. I mean, things that should be with a forklift or like filled with water. And so the the hazing and stuff he did, like quarter deck watches calling me in the middle of the night to have to come on base to stand watch. Um, Mm -hmm. It got so bad that a couple of the other commands at Mayport even said something um, to him, to other leaders, uh, and even to medical. So after being there for a little over a year and my second med board came due, I was mentally so broken down that the the chief doc who was in charge of my medical team said like, it's my strongest recommendation that I sign you out with this and you leave the military. I don't think you'll make it. And he was probably right. Like I didn't have much more left. Um, you know, I mean, it was like command after command. So. I basically, it felt like I tapped out. So I had a really hard time with how I left, but I I know it was right. But there's a grieving period when you leave the military. I mean, everybody, even people who retire, like you grieve what you, you know, I mean, for for people who had uniform on for 20 years, like that's all you knew. Mm -hmm. That's who you've been. 
So then like, who are you going to be after that? And I thought I was going to do 20 years. So at the five year mark, no, I was at the almost six year mark. No, it was a hard reality. And it was like, wait, what am I going to do now? Like, I have no idea. I had 30 days to get out. They wouldn't even let me take my terminal. Um, so I had, I got the letter from the Navy and I had enough time to take a TAPS class with a bunch of dudes retiring. And then at 30 days, all of a sudden, they basically took my ID card and sent me on my way. Wow. So I'm going to share a story with you. I don't, I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast before, but I'm a disabled veteran, right? I live with Epstein-Barr virus, uh, which I acquired somehow and some other things while serving. I don't know. Um, lifelong illnesses that I have to manage. Um, and I was 23 when this started coming on, right? And um, so how it began was I kept getting mono. I got mono every year for three years in a row. It just never left. I still get it. I haven't gotten it in almost five years now, which is a record. Usually happens every one to two years, if not every year. Since then, right? So mono, if you think mono is like getting hit with a truck, you're exhausted all the time, you have no energy, you have flu-like symptoms, and it lasts for like three months. And so you can imagine having this every year means that it's difficult for me to work a normal job, right? So while I was in though, I was in the pharmacy and um, everybody had to send um, someone to gate guard, right? So I had to go over to the security office and work for them for a little while, right? (laughs) Well, the pharmacy, Um, because I was learning on the job. So I didn't go to pharmacy school. I learned OJT, which is my favorite way to learn. And, um, but they sent me, since I was the OJT, they sent me, but I had mono. I'd just been diagnosed with mono. So I reported and I told them I had mono. Now, preceding this, I will say that I was in a little trouble. Okay, I had a sort of a reputation, um, but I hadn't done anything wrong. It's just that I like to go to a lot of underground parties. It was the 90s. Yeah. (laughs) So I hadn't done anything wrong. It's just that I had a reputation, but I just like to go dancing. What? So anyways, this reputation preceded me on the base. And so when I reported to the security office, they decided that they were going to teach me a lesson. So they put me on night duty. Now, I had mono. So I already need to sleep all the time. Instead of sending me second quarters, they sent me to do gate guard duty and the security office assigned me to nighttime hours. So I was overnight, like starting at midnight. And that's a quick way to catch a UCMJ (laughs) on watch, you know. Exactly. It was, I felt at the time it was a setup. I'm just going to call it what it is because I was not a command favorite because of my nighttime weekend activities. There's more to that story, but I'll tell it another time. 
let's just say it, it, it ends with me in a meeting with NCIS, but we'll tell that another time. Anyway, this story. So I fall asleep <laughs> at the gate every single night. And then I made it through that without getting into any trouble. I also had to work the 4th of July um, festival activities that we had on the base when all the civilians would come. So I was moving barricades, by the way, which made me remember this story when you were telling me that, with the mono, fatigued, and, yeah. you know, getting yelled at and picked on and all of these things because I'm not able to do, like, I'm not keeping up, I'm not moving fast enough, I'm not, but I'm I have mono. So eventually what happens is, I think it was right after the 4th of July weekend, and a combination of night duty and all of this, that I slept, I went to sleep and I slept for like 24 hours, like, which meant I slept through my duty. <gasps> Oops. Mm -hmm. So I was, <laughs> I was AWOL, like I was, <laughs> but I was at my apartment, I had a place off base, I was at my apartment, I just slept and I woke up and I was like, oh my God, I am gonna be in so much trouble. So I went to medical. Right? And I'm a little spunky like you. I went to medical and I went to my doctor and I said, hey, I have mono. They've been me making me work gate guard duty at night and I fell asleep. And you gotta, you gotta tell them that I should not be doing this with mono, right? So that was step one. And then I went to the pharmacy and talked to my um, lieutenant commander who was new. Um, I didn't love him. I ended up, he was creepy. I didn't like him after a while, but at this moment, he came through and I told him what happened and I, they backed me up at medical and they went to security and they were, they were fixing, like, let me tell you, they were fixing for me to go to captain's mask when I walked in that door. Oh, and they were not happy when my Lieutenant commander came to bat for me and that medical back, they were like really sad. Like they were unhappy that I was not going to go before the captain and that my career was going to be ruined. Right. And it was just, and I felt that. I felt that energy of they really wanted to string me up. That's and I just was what, what? I was a 23-year-old girl who liked to go dancing at night. That's it. Why? Rumors. You know? So I definitely understand that I and how toxic it can be. And by the way, that was in the security department with the cops. So yeah. I'm just saying. Um, so, but let's jump back to you and talk about your transition out of the military. You said that you had a TAPS class. Did you feel like that helped prepare you for civilian life at all? Oh God, no, zero, no, no. like worse than no. Um, I'm pretty sure I was the only female. So when Men's Warehouse came and talked about suits and dressing to impress in an interview and all the dude stuff, they didn't even excuse me. Um, wow. And most of the people were retiring. And it, this was 07, so, I mean, PTSD wasn't a conversation. MST mm -hmm. wasn't a conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, VA, so I got an administrative separation under medical conditions not warranting disability. That's what my DD-214 says. Wow. So I also got, like, a big fat goose egg. Like, I didn't get um, the DOD rating or any of that shit they have nowadays. Or, like, a, a, a nurse person who helps you, like, right. transition out. None of it. Um, basically, you're just falling apart, and all of a sudden, the Navy said, yeah, we're not dealing with that anymore. Just peace out. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Um, 
So I tried the GI Bill college thing right away. Um, thankfully, my parents were really beating the drum on. They're definitely education snobs because they never had those chances. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom never got to go to college. So if there was college anywhere in an opportunity, she was going to drag me there herself. Um, <laughs> so they were always beating that drum. And I definitely um, started seizing the opportunity and figuring out how to use the VA system in any capacity. So I did the GI Bill and then I filed for a VA claim, like meant something mental, somebody helped me with something. Um, so I did that, that obviously took a while. So for the first year while I'm waiting for the VA to do that, it's not like you have any other income. Um, so I waitressed and stuff, was a restaurant manager and I was dating a Navy guy from the base uh, we're married now, but at the time we were just dating and he was getting stationed over on the other coast. Um, so I moved over there with him. We weren't married. So, you know, had to downsize our household to make it work for the weight capacity for a single guy, basically. Um, so while I'm doing my VA process, I moved to the other coast over to Seattle. And then over there, discover this magical thing called vocational rehab, mm-hmm. um, voc rehab through the VA. So if you have, what is it? 40% or above or 10%, depending on what it is. Absolutely check it out. It was so worth going through Voc Rehab. Um, granted, the first thing they sent me to, they sent me to hair school. So I'm actually a cosmetologist. Wow. Yeah, it just turns, I don't have the personality for it at all. <laughs> or the physical injuries that allow me to stand long periods of time. Um, but that was a very safe industry if you think about it. So from what I'd, I'd been in a male dominated, you know, badge, loved wearing camo, like all that stuff. I went in the ap- absolute opposite direction. Like um, there's not a lot of straight men. <laughs> Other than that, it's a lot of women. Like let's just stereotype what it is. I went in a really safe industry, um, but it was horrible. So. But my, uh, you know, then I ended up getting married. My husband ended up deploying. Fast forward, we moved to another base because, you know, then there's the military spouse life I'm part of now. Mm-hmm. And I'd move over to Syracuse, New York, where his family lives because he's going on a forward deployment for two years. So I'm like, I'm not staying on the West Coast for two years by myself. Um, so I moved to Syracuse and I can't find a job as a hairdresser. So I'm an unemployed military spouse who can't get a job cutting hair. So I went back to Voc Rehab and the Voc Rehab counselor's like, WTF, did you go to hair school for in the first place? Yeah. And then she looked at like all my stuff and I had an associate's degree from before I joined and she's like, just go back to school. I'm like, okay, well, what schools are around here? She's like, Syracuse University. I'd never heard, of, <laughs> never heard of it. So um, I applied there and I had a horrible GPA. So I actually had to start at like the um, like night school part to kind of earn my way in. So I definitely didn't start with, with glory at all. <laughs> and it was a fantastic experience. So my really my turnaround in my life and my story was going to Syracuse. There's student veterans club and even professors. So I had a German professor who noticed me falling apart. I had issues with like doors slamming, um, cell phones ringing. So there were certain things that would really set me off and I would have full meltdowns. Like I cried in public and I absolutely hated it. 
uh, it was one of my biggest things for anxiety. Like I had no control over it. And she kept saying, go find your people. Like you're, you're a veteran. You need to be with your people. Um, so I finally went to a veterans club and she wasn't wrong. She absolutely wasn't wrong. So from there, I actually had like other veterans and courses. I you know, then it turned almost like into this, the military experience I didn't have. Right. You know, friendship, loyalty, respect, like none of that bullshit. So then, you know, I mean, one of the guys even went study abroad with me. I didn't even have to go abroad by myself. So it was a, it was a really cool experience. Uh, really changed my academic plan too. So that's how I fell in love with service dog industry. One of the other girls was getting a service dog and I looked at my husband. He just retired that year. I'm like, you need one of those. <laughs> so when I did the study abroad that summer, he uh, went and got a service dog. And the concept of training PTSD and trauma through that or through alternative treatments other than, you know, severely medicating somebody was fascinating. And I always loved canines. So I threw a full ride to another program away and applied to grad school at Syracuse to go into public administration and policy, focusing specifically on canine industry from a military side and from a um, disability access side. And that's where my love for the service dog industry was born and my turnaround happened. And I've been in the service dog world ever since. Wow, that's beautiful. And so tell me, when did you decide that you were going to start your own organization? Was it right then or did you work in the industry for a while and then start it? Um, so I wasn't really like sure what I wanted to do in the industry. So um, like my focuses were in two very different directions. One was um, special operations dogs, so that like military working dogs, um, but the top tier side and then public access law and disability rights. So basically invisible injuries and how they're perceived and also how they're supported from an insurance aspect, from a policy aspect, from a funding, um, public health. So like really the nerdy stuff. Um, so I dabbled in it. I was hired at an organization in Florida and built them up to being the largest national provider of service dogs. And I was a learning experience. You know, I started from straight out of college, you know, entry level, doing applications to becoming director of operations of an entire construction of $7 million property. So it was trial by fire. Um, it was really exciting. Definitely learned, you know, some hard lessons. But from there, I met, and he's currently my CEO, actually. So I met him at that first job. He was a board member and a graduate. And then when he got a job in DC, he stole me away from Florida to come up to DC and work um, building an entire veterans program for a national organization and start lobbying. And I had never done the policy side. So I got to work in DC for a year and you know, really speak on veterans policy and learn you know, the behind the scenes on how everything worked. It was awesome. Again, a lot awesome. <laughs> good and bad lessons learned. We'll just put it that way. And at the end of that, um, we, we both left that job too. 
and we almost joined another organization. And then somebody said, why do you guys keep building everybody else's? Mm, that's what that's we good. basically become known for. Like we were building programs. So then we got stolen away and build programs. So then somebody's like, why are you doing this for other people and not for yourself? And we're like, eh, not a bad concept. We really should. <laughs> so it was almost like somebody hitting us on the forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how Leashes was born. That and a desire to clean up the industry. Um, right around the time when I got the DC job, one of the graduates from my first program committed suicide. Oh, so that was the, no. basically the organizations and my, my 100% success rate gone. You know, like not only was this like a numbers thing because it completely shattered the illusion that they can save everyone yeah wow um, but it's also someone you know personally like we have skin in the game when we train these veterans with these dogs like it's personal every time i can imagine so to lose someone was like a really hard blow and we really mm-hmm. wanted to figure out like you know i mean i fell through the cracks basically in, in a way in the military yeah. so i want to yeah. be like how are veterans falling through the cracks in in the in the veteran service space and then specifically in the service dog space like where did something go wrong what wasn't done right um and that was like the underlying sad side of why leashes of valor was formed it was something needed to be done because these are our brothers and sisters committing suicide and absolutely it personal it is personal it's it's personal for all of us i think i might have mentioned before that um that's part of the reason i started this podcast too because i read an article and it said that um the suicide rates for female veterans were 250% higher than their civilian counterparts. And I went 250%, that's not like 10%. That's not like 20%. That's not even a hundred percent. I'm like, that is ridiculous. And I started thinking there are more and more female veterans. And I'm like, which means there are more and more people going to be dying. And I'm like, something has got to be done. We've got to do something, you know? And then I thought, well, I'm going to do something. So I definitely appreciate that. It is, it is. And I hate, like every time I read about a veteran dying or the ones that take their lives in, in front of like VA hospitals, particularly, you know, I'm like, when is the government going to wake up and get it? Like, what is it going to take? Is it going to take Fort Hood for them to go, okay, let's look at our bases and see what's going on. There's toxic bases. There's toxic leadership. When is it going to be enough that veterans are coming out dying? And it's not all because, oh, they saw things at war. It's not all only that. No, absolutely not. Um... I mean, at the, you know, there's atrocities at home. How many veterans have to deal with another service member's suicide? Exactly. And we saw a lot of suicides as a law enforcement officer. Um, you know, anybody who works at Dover, anybody who's part of the old guard, like, mm-hmm. it, you feel that taps playing. Like, it chips away at you. You can't tell me working there, aside from, you know, the standards that you were held up to. Like, that takes an emotional toll. So you don't have to go to combat for... Um, being exposed to things that are against the the normal human experience. Let's Mm -hmm. put it that way. And, and then there's the term that you 
coined or mentioned, I should say, so eloquently, moral injury. Big time. Like we all grow up with certain fibers from, you know, what our families and cultures instilled in us. So, you know, no two people will come out of any experience the same. No. And even our PTSD will be different, you know, based on, you know, social factors, childhood influences, people who have previous trauma are more susceptible to having even more severe PTSD, you know, PTSD. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of variables, but I mean, the worst is that the military doesn't even talk about it that much. Right. Or downplay it in the PowerPoint. That's not constructive. Yeah. And they don't want, they don't really want everyone like the, the mainstream public to understand how serious the problem is. You know, I mean, anybody on social media should be able to get a pretty good grasp on how serious it, serious it mm-hmm. is. Thank God. I mean, social media can be horrible. We all know. But it does have a really bright spot because look at Vanessa Guillen and her story. Social media has really helped her or um, Tai Ohu, that's her name, how you mm-hmm. pronounce it. And um, What's happening with her is absolutely horrifying. That girl should be getting mental health services, which she's not, she's being held in the brig after she is um, had a, a like a flashback or something. And, you know, and even her boyfriend who, I guess the story goes, maybe she pulled a gun on him. And um, he- Basically domestic. Yes. And basically and triggered. She got triggered because she didn't receive the mental help she needed initially from an assault. So in my mind, I imagine, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I imagine she got triggered, had some sort of flashback, pulled a gun. Even the boyfriend says, you know, she's no danger. But here she is in the brig languishing when she should be getting help. And, oh, where's the guy who assaulted her? Do we know what happened to him? Probably living his life somewhere. Or is another command doing it again? Yeah, like we also yeah. About the, the the repeat. Mm-hmm. Like, like, not only are you not potentially not punishing somebody, but one one toxic. Let's just go with sailor because we were both maybe. Yeah. One toxic sailor doing that, going from command to command. So if you think about that mass, that E nine that did that to me on the first command, how many people did he do that to in his career? How much talent did we lose for one person continuously? being allowed to do that kind of behavior because you know it's usually not a one-off no because once they get away with it once it was never just a one-off no no they get away with it once and then they get emboldened to do it again because they know how easy it is to -hmm. perpetrate that violence against another person because of something they're lacking within themselves or some mental health issue that they are having themselves so then they realize it's easy. So then they keep doing it. And even when I was um, on the base, there was a rapist loose on, on the base. You know, I, I heard of girls getting attacked and then it just got really quiet, you know? And <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's just nuts. I mean, we are, I can remember the fear going from just the barracks to from the car to the barracks at night while that guy was on the loose. You know, they couldn't catch him. So for, and I think it was like three months, I think. So um, it, it's ridiculous. And, and then here's another layer to this. So the women that I talked to on here, 
these women have these experiences, which I'm sure you can attest to. And they may serve one year in the military and have it an assault and got put out or five years or 10 years, but whatever the length of time they served in the military, it's nearly three times longer than that for them to recover, if ever. You know, I, Tara, um, she was on season three and she served one year and she wasn't assaulted, thank God, but she was severely stalked and harassed by a superior to, to the point where she had a nervous breakdown. And she was 18, 18, 19 years old, max, mm-hmm. max. Ended her dream of a military career. Ended her dream, okay? And not only that, she spent the next 25 years trying to heal and lead a normal life. 25 years for one year of military service. Yeah, I'm at 18 years since the first incident. Yeah, so it's appalling. It's appalling and and things have to be done. So thankfully, thankfully these days, there are so many of us doing things you know, trying to create this positive change. Like Erin, Erin has legislation in the works and I can't wait to have her back in the spring to find out what's going on with what she's doing, right? Because we have to make noise and the only way is through sometimes social media and through legislation, right? To make these changes. So, and a great change that you're doing right now is helping people with service animals, with dogs. So yeah. how, so how you guys created your own organization. Now, what were the beginning days of that like for you? How did you really get into your flow? Um, I think we definitely jumped into the deep end of the, the shark tank. We, uh, we went hard quick. We, because we left the organization in DC, um, we had a lot of, I mean, we had a really serious Rolodex and we had a lot of people immediately support us. So we were really fortunate with that. We bought a property. So the three founders are all three veterans, my CEO, Jason, um, my husband and myself. So we're basically using our, we used our own funds to buy the property, um, start setting everything up and start getting dogs, hiring a trainer, sending people to school. Uh, so we're setting all these things up simultaneously because uh, we are a residential program. So we actually house the veteran on property. They have their own cottage um, so that they have their own space. But it is basically like teaching someone with a prosthetic for the brain. They, they do go through pretty rigorous training while they're here because it is a pretty serious responsibility to give somebody a tool that you know, in some situations can literally be life or death. So we take it pretty serious and we want to get eyes on the person. Um, and we want to make sure they leave with all the knowledge to be set up for success. So the first year was spent spending money, fundraising and getting everything into place. We were founded in April of 2017 and we had our first veteran going through the program in January of 2018. Um, so we already had 
five dogs in training by then because most of our dogs are with us for almost 15 to 18 months usually. Wow. Um, yeah, and so we, we're three years old. We um, have graduated over 10 veterans in this program. We have currently over 20 dogs in training. Um, we are a team of six. The founders are unpaid. We're veterans donating our time to make this happen. And then of course we have, you know, a trainer for the talent and social media marketing and all those things. Um, so yeah, that's, that's us in a nutshell. So I guess my next question absolutely has to be, if I'm a veteran who wants your help, how do I go through your process? What do I do? So you go on our, our social media channels, which is Leashes of Valor on Facebook, Instagram, any of those and DM us and, or you can go on our website, leashesofvalor.org and ask for an application. They're not just downloadable. Like you actually have to make contact. Um, so we can kind of start keeping an eyeball on people inquiring. I'm not just gonna let you ghost on us. And we also like to talk and coach the person through the application. So we're usually, one of us is available for a phone call or something to, you know, there's questions. People have questions. It's like match.com for a dog. So you're going to spend a lot of time together. You need to, you need to make sure it's right. Um, the biggest criteria for us is post 9-11. We asked for an honorable discharge, but we will, everything is on a case-by-case -case basis because I know the military doesn't always get it right. Um, so True don't that. let that deter you. We will absolutely entertain applicants. And the diagnosis of PTSD, TBI, MST, or any of the affiliating. I know like back in the day, they also gave like personality disorder or depressive, you know. Right. I've, I've seen how diagnoses and processes can keep people from getting resources. Um, please don't think just doesn't fit in one of the three wickets that you are not going to get a service dog from us. Our biggest criteria really in the end is somebody putting skin in the game. Um, you got to be really vulnerable and do a lot of figuring out where you're at in, it, in order to go in public with a dog because it's going to start making things public that before nobody saw about you. As soon as that dog is next to you, people anywhere will know something is wrong with you. Um, that's actually a big step for many, especially if you have MST. Uh, it's, it's not as glorious to say I was raped in the military as it is to say, you know, I have a purple heart. So there's shame involved and overcoming a lot of those barriers on where you're at with your injury and your recovery um, and being self-aware on why you need a dog, like what's your next step. So a perfect example is Justin and Tango, one of our graduates. He's a farmer in Montana. He's a Marine combat vet. And we were, we really, we talked about it all the time. We questioned why does a farmer with 10,000 acres in Montana need a service dog? Like you have the life we all want no human <laughs> right. like sky country like take me over there baby beautiful um but he was super self-aware about like i struggle with my mind wandering when i'm basically driving the combine and i go down memory lane and i can't be there i cannot handle going back to where i was and he said and those usually leave me with an anger and he works with his dad it's family farm it's like fourth or fifth generation 
He said, I let the anger out on my dad and he doesn't deserve that. And we have a family business to run. Like I'm messing with my, my children's livelihood if this continues. So like that level of these are my needs. These are some of the things I'm aware of where I need help, you know, let's talk about next steps. And absolutely like him and Tango ride that tractor and combine all day long. So, it, you know, it was a learning experience for us, but they're one of the most successful service dog teams I've ever seen because of the amount of um, work the veteran put into it. Like this is not a, it's not a free bicycle and you're just going to be on your way and it doesn't require anything. Um, because to go out in public with a dog definitely requires a lot more because again, your injury is visible. Wow. I never thought of it that way, but it's so true. You know, everyone, if you're in the grocery store with a pet, people look, I look when I see, of course, I'm usually like that dog is so cute. Cause I'm a dog lover, but um, it's true. I actually, met a gentleman, another vet. Um, I was at the doctor at the VA <laughs> and he came in with a pig <laughs> and it was the service animal. It was the cutest thing I've ever seen. It act just like a dog. <laughs> Let me pet it, loved me that thing. And I thought, man, maybe I want a pig, but I have a rabbit, but it doesn't go everywhere with me. It's just sort of at home. And that's one of the biggest things I see a lot of people freaking out. They get these sea lawyer information about, well, service dog will cure you. You know, mm. like I heard this from this guy and this master mm -hmm. chief told me this that one time and he sprinkled salt on it and then it was all gone. Right. Some people really, the, all you need is an emotional support animal and don't let that, that term deter you from the benefit you can receive. It's, it's owning a dog or, or a rabbit. Like the value of just having that animal, that responsibility to get out of bed in the morning, something that figures out if your heart rate is accelerating you're not alone, the trust level, you can tell that animal anything, they will not talk. <laughs> you know, there's so many, and then nightmares. Usually by intuition, a lot of these animals, you know, do affect your sleep in a positive way. So, you know, there's a lot to be said that even if you don't have access to a service dog, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, there isn't other solutions out there or that a service dog is the best solution for you. Some people will benefit just from having it at home and not in public. I know women who are in career positions that don't want to seen, be seen as, you know, they feel more vulnerable by showing a disability. I mean, it's a horrible mentality that, to feel that way, but I can understand why they don't. Yeah. I think the beautiful thing is the compassion that you have for all of these people. It's really, really beautiful. And um, I just have one more question for you before sure. we wrap it up. My last question for you is what advice would you give to your veteran sisters coming behind you? I mean, gosh, first of all, don't go it alone. Like, and especially we just hinted on social media, like, find your groups, find your people. My professor wasn't wrong, find your people. And if one group isn't right, like not, not the first pair of jeans you try on is gonna you know, work just right. Like keep, keep experimenting. I've left Facebook groups before because they were too toxic or they were too, you know, one topic that wasn't my thing. 
but find your people. Don't go it alone. And you wrote that check like everybody else. Um, you serve. How they chose to cash that check in, that's not your responsibility. So you showed up. Um, so get, go get your resources. You earned those. And I mean, from any aspect, any organization that you're eligible for, uh, don't be shy to ask for help. That's the the thing that got me out of the weeds, honestly, is finding my people and, and using my resources. Beautiful. Very, very solid advice. And I, I belong to a lot of Facebook groups as well. And I can't advocate for that enough. I mean, um, if you know my story, you know that I was very nearly homeless and I had to rely on my friends to help me get a job and get on my feet. And then um, this company that I started working for hired veterans. And um, they actually, it was at a time where it wasn't necessarily the best thing to have on your resume was being a veteran. And they took me on and I was successful there. And when I got on my feet, um, something was still missing. And, and then a veteran crossed my path that needed help um, signing up for medical benefits and I knew how, so I helped and that felt great. And then, and then for somehow the universe or God or whatever you believe in kept <laughs> planning veterans in my path that I could help. And it really changed my life. And it turned out that that would be the advice I would give to a veteran who was suicidal that would cross my path. I would say, hey, find a veteran to help. Join a veteran group, help somebody. It will make you feel better. That's what worked for me. And lo and behold, I'd see them keeping on and they'd join a group and, and I'd see like on MySpace back in the day or Facebook when it became that, right? That yep. they were they were helping other veterans and they were doing better. And I, and I mean, even if it was just a veteran friend that I knew from high school who I knew was having mental health issues and I would just be like, hey, did you take your meds today? for a few months until they like got on. It just made me feel so much better. So I agree with your advice. You, you cannot um, discredit getting into that. You might think you might run in the far direction of anything military or because of your experience in the military. And you do that for a while. I know I certainly did it. I didn't want anything to do. I didn't tell anyone I was a veteran for a good minute. But the reality is is when you find people who understand what you went through, who understand that life, who understand the terminology, the language, the culture, it just does something for you that I really can't put into words. So we are a community of the Female Veterans Podcast. And there are so many communities out there for female veterans now that I encourage you to find one to be a part of. I support that advice a thousand percent. Thank you for it. And um, I also want to thank you so much, Danique, for sharing your time with me and your story and being so relatable and so honest and open with everything that you experienced. It's just been such a pleasure to talk to you and, and to make this connection. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I, uh, I mean, I truly, truly enjoyed uh, sharing the good and the bad, you know, like there's, there's a lot of positivity out there. And realistically, I wouldn't be literally sitting right here doing this if the journey hadn't taken me that way. So, you know, no grit, no pearl, baby. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love your energy. So again, I want to say thank you so much. And for sure, like, 
we we take the good, we take the bad. It's all lessons. It all put us on the path to where we are now. And if you're not where you want to be, you'll get there. Don't give up. Keep trying. Keep going for it. You can get there. Just know you can. Um, And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Um, If you want to connect with Danique and you're interested in Leashes of Valor, Danique, will you tell us one more time your website? It's leashesofvalor.org. And we're also on all the socials. Great. So you can find her anywhere. And I, of course, will put her information in the show notes, which is the description of the episode. And also, if you want to connect with me, you can find me there. And if you like what you heard today, make sure to give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, which used to be iTunes, and are on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. And um, stay tuned for my new video series that will be on exclusively the Veterans Channel, where you can also listen to this podcast. And um, it will be called Women Warrior Stories. So check that out. It's coming out in the next few weeks. And um, I'll see you around on social media. You know where to find me. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you so much. I love you guys. And I'll talk to you next time.